electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center. This hour, the rally's reality check. Stocks falling as Fed fears return. So is the big summer bounce over? We discuss and debate that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Steve Weiss, right here with me on set, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal. Let's check the markets as we always do. Every sector, there you go. Every sector is negative today. We come off the worst week since July 1st. Ten-year is back above 3%. You see it there at 3.02. Joe, we got a big test, right? The bulls do. The bulls have a big test after we're up 14.5% from the June low. Bears are in control right now, though. We had well, the, the bulls test. were in control. Well, we had, like. we, that was the test. The test was last week. Technicals have been the catalyst behind this rally. We tested the 200-day moving average. We got right there. Got right there. The market hit its head on the 200-day moving average, wobbled, and has fallen right back. Now, look, going into that test of the 200-day moving average, I was on air talking about how quant funds would engage further if we broke out above the 200-day moving average. So I still believe we have done enough positive work for technicals where we've shifted from sell the rips to buy the dips. So I'm looking to be a buyer once again. Well, you are. In the queues at some point this week. Not yet, because I know the bears are in control, and I don't okay. like the fact that the U.S. dollar is near a 19-year high. That's, that's not a good condition. Ten-year above 301, 302. But I'm looking, where's my next trade? My next trade is to try and buy this market with a point of reference at one of these moving okay. averages. So we knew that the market was due for a bounce when stocks were at their low of June 16th. Roger. So that's not a big surprise that we got a bounce. The question is whether things got a little crazy in the interim and whether stocks rallied to begin with on a false narrative. The narrative being that Fed's pivoting. They're going to pivot or at least they're at the beginning of the end of of the rate hike cycle. Stocks are up 8% since the Powell presser on July 27th. That's before today's move. Was it a false narrative? Should stocks have been up the way they were after Powell or not? There's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Let me start with what you asked. Is it a false narrative regarding the Fed? My fundamental thesis, okay, Joe, you did a great job last week when I asked you to explain the technicals and the quants. I thank you for that. You know I respect technicals, but I am a fundamental analyst. And I look at this and I say, the rally is not based on the idea of a Fed cut pause for effect. It's not based on the on the perception that they're going to cut rates. It's based on the perception that they're going to raise 100 basis points from here to year end and then be done. Okay, not cutting, not cutting. All right. That's not what we're looking for. Now, that would be 50 basis points, Scott, in September 25 and 25, November and December. If that comes to pass, my belief is the market will look at that as catnip. It will look forward at all the economic forces that I've spoken about ad nauseum. But for that to happen, inflation has to consistently come down. That's the sine qua non. Okay, okay? so the likelihood of your scenario playing out, hasn't it decreased 
this week with their release of the minutes. Got everybody all no. focused on the Fed. Powell's going to give a speech later this week at Jackson Hole. It's likely to be just as hawkish as all of his other speeches. Every Fed person since Powell took that microphone at the end of, of the last month tried to come out and tell you the markets. They've tried to say they've about? tried to say we're not cutting. I agree. I don't think they're cutting. I actually don't want them to agree. Like, let's live in a real world where the Fed funds rate is at three, three and a half percent. I don't like this zero interest rate policy that we've been in for more years than I care to count. But to your question, which you rationally asked, didn't the probability of my scenario just decrease? I humbly say to you, no, I think it increased. And here's why. I'm looking at, and I know you've been away for two weeks, so you've probably forgotten this, but I'm going to get you tired of it really quickly. I remember everything. If it's something you said, I remember. (laughs) I had my notes when I was gone. I'm going to look at gasoline futures. Yeah, they're down. I was in California, though. Let me tell you It's something. a weird world out there. It's a, it's a weird world. It's a fun place to visit. There's love no California. California. dreaming when you're going to fill your gas tank. I can <laughs> yeah, tell you that. I got you. I love California. I'm not going to live there, okay? Gasoline's one reason why. But gasoline futures, September, are off fully a third from June high at the pump nationwide. Nationwide, at the pump, they're down 20%. There's more room to give. Look at corn and wheat futures. They're back to the levels before the uh, uh, Ukrainian invasion. Look at freight costs coming down. All of these costs transfer through, excuse me, transfer through into the CPI. We're going to get a read in a couple of weeks. Actually, it's more like three weeks. I think it's September 10th. That will be before the next Fed meeting. It's going to be important to determine whether we get that 50, 25, and 25 mm-hmm. or something worse. So, Bryn, let, let's talk about why we rallied in the first place. Do we, do we rally because the macro suddenly looked a lot better? I don't think so. Nope. Do we rally because the inflation picture? No. Eh, Jim wanted to jump in, but he cannot do that right now. <laughs> Did we rally because the inflation picture, as Jim suggests, looks a whole lot better? Ex-gasoline, some of the other things that he mentioned. Not really. We rallied because the market figured the Fed was going to pivot. They took it what Powell said at the press conference and suggested that they were near the end, or at least the beginning of the end. And that's why the market took off, as I said, it's up 8% since that Powell presser on July 27th. Now, all of a sudden this week, We're rethinking everything. Well, wait a minute. The minutes suggest that they may actually be more hawkish than we thought, even though Fed person after Fed person after Fed person has come out since that Powell presser and suggested the market. We think they're getting it wrong from the from the beginning. So where does that leave us now? Yeah, well, well, first of all, in terms of the rally, You have to understand, and the investors out there have to understand, there was a massive amount of short covering. That energy on the market is a huge driver of why stocks were up so much. And then the broader constituents joined in towards the end. And also, if you look at, you know, Goldman Sachs has a list of their most heavily shorted stocks. I think from June 16th to um, about two weeks ago, they were at 45%. So multiples of what the market was up. And so you clearly saw this heavy, heavy short covering. And I still think though that the CTAs and hedge funds are in charge. So I do, I would caution investors because now what's happening and, and you know, Joe talked about it really well, is we're, we're at this mother of all technicals, the 200 day moving average and we're bumping along. But when I listen to Jim and, and once again, I'm in the camp that there's a wide range of outcomes. So I, I part of me agrees with what Jim says, but, but where I challenge a little bit about the Fed is, you know, Powell has been very, very clear, 2% inflation, not 5%, not 6%, not 7%, but two. And so really to say a Fed pivot 
To me, what you'd have to have the Fed say is in three or four months from now, if inflation's down at five or six percent, they're going to say, OK, we're done for now. I question that, Scott, though, because of this. Powell is very much of a Volcker fan, Volcker disciple. Prior to Volcker, we had a Fed chairman named Arthur Burns from 71 to 78. He actually did that and let inflation and stopped raising rates and then it came roaring back. And so I think when we talk about Volcker and the Fed pivot, you have to understand Jay Powell also knows about the history of Arthur Burns. And so I just think it's much dicier to say that the Fed's going to stop and just sit still. And don't forget QT is coming soon to a theater near us and how that impacts the market. I do think it will have an impact. It's an actual thing that's happening, not just rhetoric. Okay. Uh, Weiss is going to join us in, in momentarily, but we're having a problem with his feed. He probably thinks I have something to do with that directly, which as much as I wish that I did, I don't. So we'll, we'll get his voice in in just a second. What about this idea? Jim pushes back on the notion that it's a false narrative. He suggests that inflation is actually coming down to the degree that the Fed is not going to have to tighten as much as people fear the most that they could. OK, you do 50, then maybe 25, then 25. And then we're good because inflation is finally cooperating. So I, I think with, with all due respect, what's happened now is that we, we've repositioned towards, towards the potential outcome that you're defining, and we could move further in that direction. We see that, right? Um, but more work needs to be done. And, and that's why, again, I fall back on, I think time is the solution to all of this, uh, to where we get to that point. I don't think you could say that we're at the point right now where you know for certain that inflation is moderated enough where the Federal Reserve is going to step back, especially when I hear the Saudis today talking about this disconnect between oil futures and the reality of fundamentals for oil. And that guess what? Next month, they're actually going to cut production. That's that's not going to contribute positively to inflation. So I don't think you could make that statement today. I agree that we're moving potentially in that direction, but we need more time. We're not Let's there. frame the discussion, because you gave me a very compound question early on. Yeah. And part of what I didn't discuss is you're absolutely right. A 17 percent off the a rally off the bottom. You have to give some of that back. Right. There's nothing scintillating in what I just said. You have to give five to seven percent of that at least back before you march higher. The question, though, I think everybody in the market is asking, was it, to use your term, Scott, a false narrative and thus a false rally? Are we going back? Back to the $3,700, $3,600 range on the S&P 500. And that's where fundamentally I don't think so. But to the points that you're making, absolutely, those are catalysts, as are Friday's speech in Jackson Hole, while the mar- why the market could, probably should pause a little bit here. But I also think that sentiment-wise, things have changed, where it's a little bit more balanced and even more tilting towards the positive. And what that means is certainly we know some people got left on the sidelines during this rally. Where are they tilting more towards the positive? Home sales dropped in July, sixth straight month. Leaning indicators fell again in July, fifth straight month. Philly Fed expanded give, after two consecutive. Let me finish. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I get you. I get you. Uh, expanded in August after two consecutive negative. You see what happens? I come back. He tries right. to do that. Demand continues to be weak, though. 
It, legitimate points, all of them. There are negatives out there. It's a question of the balance between the negatives and the positives. No, there now, are positives out there. But, but are me, the positives enough yes. to keep the Fed from doing what it has to do to get inflation closer to 2%? No, because inflation is still high. Guys, we're, not getting, crazy to, high. we're not getting to 2% by the end of the year. No, I'm may, not when saying are we getting, that. We might not get to 2% by the end of next year. Well, I think we will. No, there I disagree with you. I think we will. I think there's a very reasonable chance that we will. I'm but by no means am I. In that, but you get my no, point. I get your point. But by no means am I saying we're going to be at 2% by year end, but if we're at 5 4% and clearly trending down. Now, to the question that is also going along with this, are we in a recession or headed for a near-term recession? You rightfully point out housing. All right, that's a big reason why the economy should slow. On the other side of that, auto production, which also has a very strong multiplier effect in the economy. We know it has been held back for over a year by lack of semiconductors. Those are coming through. You're seeing automobile production pick up. That's an important economic powerful effect. Not Not enough to fully offset housing, but it's an important one. So, Bryn, uh, I feel like the biggest question of all, obviously, not a pretty profound statement here, is tech. Obviously, what's happening now with with tech today. Oh, and we do have Weiss back. So I'll get to you, Weiss, in just a second. But, Bryn, let me just just finish this line of questioning to you. Um, Nasdaq's up more than 10 percent since that Powell presser. Right. On the belief that if the Fed was closer to the end, you wouldn't have a exorbitant rise in interest rates and thus tech stocks would do better than others. Now that seems to be called into question, no? Well, I think you've had such a big rally in tech and especially in those those higher beta tech names. And so as the 10 years getting closer to three, that's where you're going to start to see the unwind stock. Unwind start is in those higher tech beta, those higher beta tech names. But I mean, on the on the as a juxtaposition, Apple is so strong and continues to be so strong. You know, when you were gone, you know, we sold our Q's position and actually went into a more defensive Q's, which writes, which sells out of the money calls on the Q's. Because I still do think over the last 10 years, the Nasdaq's done close to 15 percent per year for the last 10 years. It is over earned. I think there's going to be more disparity between the underlying names. And I still think there's going to be volatility there. And so we wanted to sell calls against that and not just have that direct brunt exposure after this nice rally that we saw over the last month. OK, so take the ball from there, Weiss. Nice to see you, by the way. Um, sure. But I, I don't know if you were able to hear everybody's commentary because your feed was down. I did. Uh, so what do you make of it? Yeah, I, I did hear it all, and I, I was very entertained. Uh, look, I agree with some of it, and uh, some of it I disagree with, and, and you could probably guess where that is. The bulls seem to want to have it both ways. They want to say, hey, the consumer is stronger than ever. The economy is really strong. Don't worry about one of the two pillars of the economy, which, as you point out, housing uh, selling off. Yet inflation is going to come down. The Fed's going to stop. Think of the contradiction in that thought process. So... The easiest way to analyze the market and see what happened is look no further than the 10-year. As the 10-year yield started to rally. Back at 3%. Uh, and 10-year started to sell off, right? Then you've seen the market come down over the last few days. And that's going to be the case. Look, Powell knows he made a mistake at this point. The whole world knows he made a mistake with saying inflation is transitory. I also bought into that early on. So they're not going to make the same mistake here and say inflation is transitory. Let's just get it to 5% and then we'll take our foot off the gas. That's not going to happen. They would rather overshoot because longer term inflation is more destructive to the economy going forward than it is a benefit. You, now, in terms of autos. This, this, let me ask you this. this. Let me ask autos. you this. Let me ask you just point blank. Okay, do do, do you think that the, the, this big summer rally 
is over? Is that what the last week started I, I, to tell I, well, us? Right. So I don't know if it's over today, but I've been consistent in saying that in September it ends. In October, it's definitely over and not coming back because that's when Fed actions, the one they've done to date, start to take effect because it takes a while for rising rates to filter through the economy. And don't forget, with the lack of issuance in treasuries, you've had unreasonably loose conditions in contravention to what the Fed was trying to do. So you can see that reverse. And then, of course, they really start paring back the balance sheet. So you've seen the market rise, as Bryn points out, from short covering number one, from, Ill, from liquid conditions in, in the markets overall in the economy, and FOMO. And those are all reversing. I don't think we go below the lows that we've seen, but I do think that we can kiss those lows and perhaps stay down there because things just aren't that great. And you're seeing pressure from earnings mm -hmm. and you're all seeing more analyst downgrades. They're getting it. They're close to the situation. I'm not saying they're perfect, but that's how I think it plays out. So you can party on until the end of the month, but that's getting kind of cute. Which is why I took some. I mean, uh, some are wondering whether you can. Week. Some are wondering whether you, Joe, can party on until just the end of the week. I mean, if Powell once again makes it clear, right? The minutes are obviously backward looking. Um, you know, they spook people for obvious reasons. And whether he gets a real reality check on the rally later this week when he makes his speech, there are some positive signals though. And you know, Weiss pointed to a couple. I mean, technically, we did get back more than fifty percent of the losses, which historically suggests you're not going to go back to the lows or breach those if, if you do that. But the, I don't know. This, this time might be different for so many different reasons, and that may just fall into that basket, too, of something not to hang your hat on. So last week, you know, multiple people reached out to me and they said, hey, you know, you're, you're just way too bullish in, in the way that you're, you're looking at the markets. Uh, Doug Cass sent me a very thoughtful email, challenged me on, on my perspective. And, and this morning, you know, that perspective clearly looks wrong. But again, I'm going to fall back upon what you said. I do think we've done enough work technically where at the very least the market can kind of consolidate here within the moving averages. So let's keep in mind the 50-day moving average, which is finally starting to point up, sits somewhere around 39.70 for the S&P. Uh, the 100-day moving average sits at 40.91. So we're still above both of those moving averages. And I, and I think we've done the work where we could kind of hang in here as we go through this process of time to understand if the fundamentals, mm -hmm. if the fundamentals meet Jimmy's uh, overwhelming, overwhelmingly optimistic view of them. We need some time to get to that point. Now, I will tell you that I think what's important, though, is strategically thinking about where you want to be on the other side of this, because you got a big question to resolve strategically. I still think that an economic contraction no matter how deep it is, is the price you pay to combat inflation. And that takes me towards growth. And that's the reason why Apple's so strong and a lot of the mega caps are so strong. Well, you said you because were thinking people, about buying back the Qs. At some point this week, I will take I will take a position in the Qs once again against what I'll call a very well-defined point of reference. It's really what, for me, it's a dummy price where I know I'm wrong, right? And it's against those moving averages. Why not? But see, if you cited the 50-day moving average before mm -hmm. as one of the reasons. And people started to get optimistic around the 50 days when... I initiated a trade because of it. Yeah. Well, a lot of technicians sort of were throwing cold water at that same moment mm -hmm. on the 50-day idea. They don't pay that close attention to it. It's the 200-day. And the fact is the door slammed in the face of the rally at the 200-day on, on the S&P. And until you can 
get above that, which suggests that maybe the, the trend is changing, mm-hmm. right? Because we've been in this downtrend and we're still, we haven't proven anything to suggest that we're out of the downtrend. Yep. That the 50 day, who cares? Get above the 200 day, then start talking to me. Okay, so the break above the 50 but, but was, it, con- it's not- the break above the 50, Steve, let me just make this quick point, was concurrent yeah, sure. with extreme pessimism and, and bearish positioning. The challenge against the 200-day, you'd worked off a significant amount of the bearish positioning and sentiment. Now what I'm suggesting to you is with a low risk point of reference, I'll buy against those 150-day moving averages because they should offer some degree of support. I'll very quickly get out of that trade if I'm wrong. And if I'm right, we're going to go back up towards that 200-day moving average. And the next time there, Scott, you have a you know much better you know probability. You have a much better probability that yeah. you're going to break above it. Go ahead, Weiss. Yeah, look, I, I think there's too much reliance on technicals. Technicals are often backward-looking and forward-looking. Say, if it holds this, then it's going to go there. Now, I do think you have to look at them, but I don't invest off them. I think what's more, much more important than finding support is what the algos do. And what the the equity portfolios are also fixed income portfolios. And when they see that yields are starting to trend to 3% and we're over 3% now, they say, you know what, it's time to sell equities. And they're not even looking at the technicals. So that's a much more powerful force than picking, you know, what can be an arbitrary moment momentary point in time where 200 days of support. No, but if the technicals, I, I, Scott, are, if if can, the technicals are negative, Weiss, it, it, yeah. it certainly uh, causes one to oh, yes. have significant doubts about the validity of, of a move. I think that's what we're talking about. Krinsky today Absolutely. says there are many, many signs. I'm reading from his note, Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG. We have him on the show all right. the time. Uh, there are many signs, he says, pointing to a break below 41.77 including high yield, the dollar, yields, a return of energy, a leadership. But let's take it one step at a time. Wolf Research says of 10 reasons we're not buying the bull case, technicals is number one. They've started to turn, uh, they suggest. Jimmy. I'd love for the technicals to be supportive. I'd love to come back and breach that 200-day moving average. As you know, I don't live in technicals, but I respect them. I think fundamentals will get us back up there. And the fundamentals I'm talking about are company-specific. So just last week, Cisco reported its earnings, Cisco Systems, right? And they point-blank said, as many other companies have, we don't see the slowdown in enterprise spending. We don't see the recession. On Friday, you had General Motors reinstate its dividend and increase its share buyback. Now, look, there have been decades of bad management at General Motors. I will grant you that. Mary Barra is not cut from that cloth. She has gotten in front of the EV space and she knows what she's doing along with her management team. She would not reinstate that dividend if she felt a recession were near term. 2023, mid-2023, maybe. I don't know. But right now, you have the fundamentals supporting economic growth in excess of what the market thinks. And I think that's what will get you that uptrend developing. And Joe, I'd love for you to be sitting here telling me the technicals are supportive. I feel really good. I think you're going to get there in a week or two. All right, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. You know, the, the, go ahead, finish it up real quick. Yeah, let me just finish up on autos. Just because auto companies are producing doesn't mean they're going to be able to sell them. 
And as a matter of yes, fact, they've got to produce now because those were their schedules. And so the worst case scenario is that you'll see what they're, what's happening in housing. Now will be replicated in autos, as it so often is. And you'll be able to buy cars a lot cheaper. You're already seeing incentives. All right. I'm going to make this just factual. All right. Auto inventories right now on the lot are one-fifth of what they normally are. One-fifth. Okay. Now, that means that the demand no has not. I'm still speaking. That means demand has not been able to be met with supply. Supply. I don't care if demand come down a little bit. It's still there because these cars, they wear out. They need to be replaced. And by the way, that production of vehicles, I would not short sell that. That has a huge multiplier effect all through the economy, whether it's employment, whether it's materials, whether it's transportation. If you if you think that auto production doesn't matter, I very strongly disagree. All right. I know we could go back and forth for 10 minutes on that, but we're going to take a break, thankfully. We're going to talk about semi-stocks. They're continuing their slump. NVIDIA and Marvell are getting ready to report earnings this week. One of the committee members is making moves in that space. We're going to reveal that. We'll debate it. We'll do it in two. Half will be right back. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Oh, it's an ugly day for the Nasdaq. You see there a decline of nearly 2%. It is a big week for tech stocks, particularly cyclical techs like chips. That's what we want to watch because we have NVIDIA and Marvell set to report this week. So, Bryn, you own NVIDIA, as does Joe. I want you first, though, uh, Bryn, to talk to me about what you're thinking going in and whether you're concerned for a stock that's down more than 40% year to date. Yeah, well, so talking about technicals, the technicals don't look good on the stock right now going into earnings today. You have to remember, though, they already pre-announced. We all know gaming is close to 50%. I think it's around 46% of revenues. And then like autos and ARVR are less than 10%. So it's going to be about gaming, I think, data center second. But listen, this is going to be an opportunity if this stock sells off to be able to buy this company. I originally bought it back in 2018 when it had sold off because of crypto. But if you look at all of the all of the different verticals they're in, 
They are secular growers. Gaming is a secular grower. Esports, all that stuff. This is all temporary. So if it sells off, we'll see what happens. Um, I'm very, very likely to add the, to the position. I think it's a wonderful company in Jensen Wong. You very rarely have a visionary CEO that's been there since the beginning, still being able to take advantage of that. We know, though, from others that gaming is not exactly going gangbusters right now, Joe. I mean, if that's where you're putting your focus... We Watch know, out. We know that from NVIDIA. They've made that clear as well. So um, the entry price for me is, is one in which I got pretty lucky. On July 5th, the stock bottomed at 140. I bought it that day uh, towards the end of the day up at around 148. So I'm in at a good level. I have zero expectations uh, in terms of them being positive for the stock, whether it's technically or fundamentally. And maybe that's the, the, the catalyst is just that so many people realize the challenges that are ahead for NVIDIA. I think you have to have semi-exposure if you believe in Jimmy's fundamental thesis. I think you have to have semi-exposure if you believe in what I'm telling you, where I think the market is now a buy-the-dip market. As he we sold NVIDIA two fall. weeks ago, though. But I'm still overweight chips. Why'd you sell NVIDIA two weeks ago? Uh, simply because that multiple with that big of a whiff on a pre-announcement, I can't do it. I can't. That's a, that's a bad what combination. What do you own in its place? Uh, I own Qualcomm. I own NXP. Okay. Um, I, it's really that simple. When I mean, that is a multiple. It's now 43 times this year's earnings, 32 times next year's earnings. In a vacuum, I tell you that's too expensive for a semiconductor company. But everybody has rightly said this is a special semiconductor company. It is until you get that big of a miss. And I know it's top line. We'll find out what the bottom line is uh, this week. I just I, I can't put that combination of the multiple and that pre-announcement together and still own the stock. You know who doesn't own Qualcomm anymore? I know. Your boy Weiss. I know. Weiss, why'd you sell Qualcomm and the SMH? Well, I sold the SMH last week. I sold Qualcomm mostly on Friday, some before. The reason being, it was a trade. And Qualcomm, I thought, was safe to trade because it was a cheap stock. Still a cheap stock. But you can't ignore the news that's coming out around the world on cell phones. And while Qualcomm's not just a cell phone company, that is a big part of their business. And uh, they, you know... They came out in a quarter. Quarter was good, but their guidance was poor. And Jim feels he can ignore that. But here's what I'd say. Cell phones are down 25%. Zomi, you know, Apple's holding up. Samsung's holding up. But overall, they're down. And people, when they're forced with the choice of, do I buy groceries? Do I fill my car with gas to get to work? Or do I buy a new cell phone that, by the way, only has a slightly better camera? Maybe. I think they're going to choose sustenance over luxury. Jim, <laughs> I was going to have Jim respond to you. It's amazing that you guys missed what just happened in, in this place. I think there's a storm outside. All the lights went out. And now they've come. As you were talking, the lights went out. I don't know if it was you, Weiss, or the That's rain. That's my wrath. <laughs> but it was going to keep Jim it's, from it's responding my to it, you. But now the lights are back on. No one even knew other than what I just told you happened. You want to respond? Yeah. Now that we don't have to do this. Now that we don't have to do this by candlelight. Yes. Um, Look, look, uh, Steve, I think eloquently pointed out it's a trade, not an investment. I look at Qualcomm as a long term investment. And yes, you can try to trade this thing. Okay, Qualcomm over the last few years has beaten the S&P 500. 
I expect that it will. My investment thesis is to hold it through these ups and downs and get that outperformance. Yes, by definition, you can try to trade these ups and downs and do better. But this is a high quality company trading at just over 11 times earnings, diversifying its revenue stream. And to the question that Steve rightfully pointed out, hey, you're not comfortable with uh, NVIDIA's pre-announcement, but you're okay with where uh, Qualcomm is. It's literally one quarter of the multiple going for on a forward basis. It's literally one-fourth of that multiple, so I'm pretty comfortable with it. Okay. Let's get the headlines now with Bertha Coombs. Hi, Bertha. Hey, Scott. I'm very happy to be able to enlighten you now that the lights are back. A group of divers claim to have found the remains of Kelly Rodine, uh, the 16-year-old who disappeared from a Lake Tahoe graduation party on August 6th. Authorities are expected to confirm the identification at a 1 p.m. press conference. Volunteer divers with a group called Adventures with Purpose said they found the girl inside her car, which they said came to rest upside down about 14 feet of water. The nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, plans to step down from his roles running the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and advising the White House as its chief medical advisor at the end of this year. Fauci has led that institute for 38 years. And Pfizer and its German partner, BioNTech, are asking the Food and Drug Administration to authorize COVID booster shots that target the Omicron BA4 and BA5 subvariants for people ages 12 and older. Public health officials expect another wave of infection this fall as immunity from the currently authorized shots wanes. Scott, back over to you. Okay, Bertha, thank you. That's Bertha Coombs. Still ahead, the ETFs you need to watch as stocks slide today, plus trading the cloud. That group up more than 14% from its recent lows. The debate if you should be buying ahead of key earnings from some of the big players there. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Halftime Report. I'm Leslie Picker. We're diving deep into clean energy plays. The Biden administration taking steps to combat the climate crisis with last week's passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, sparking questions about the new energy economy. What will the ripple effects be on supply chains and beyond as we move toward a more energy efficient era? And what are the most crucial alternative energy sources out there. Joining us now is Tom Leiden, Vice Chairman of Vetify, also along with Tom Johnson, Blue Horizon Capital Partner, who runs the Blue Horizon New Energy Economy ETF, ticker BNE. Thank you, gentlemen, very much for being here. Uh, Tim, the administration pledging $370 billion in energy and climate initiatives, more spending in this area than any other single piece of legislation Congress has ever passed, according to Goldman Sachs, mostly, though, in the form of tax credits. Give us your take. Who stands to benefit the most here? Yeah, so as we see it, it's going to be uh, really broad-based. It's not just the, the groups that are going to be generating, distributing, and using the energy that we create today in terms of renewables. But it's also the supply chain, uh, and particularly those that have a focus 
on a North American supply context or a fair trade partner. Effectively, what they're trying to do by, by utilizing this new Inflation Reduction Act is try and build up that supply chain. We've had all these issues over the last couple of years when it comes to being able to get the materials that we need to build out this infrastructure and everything else that goes with it. And so now we're going to see more capital being put into, let's say, the, the friendly uh, economies associated with building out this, uh, this ecosystem. All right. So, Tom, we've already seen a big push toward clean energy ETFs. Do you think this will be the next big catalyst that drives further flows? Yeah, clean energy ETFs have been with us for a while, for sure. Uh, some of the biggest with the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF and the Invesco Solar but most of them are chock full of wind and solar companies. I think kind of what Tim is saying is, in the future, spread the wealth a little bit. Look for areas like energy storage, battery companies, performance material manufacturers that grab lithium and cobalt out of the ground. Those big ETFs have done great, collectively have $9 billion in them so far. But in the future, spread it around a little bit to global companies, small cap up-and-comers. Yeah. I think that'll make a lot of sense. That's a good point. It's There's a whole energy, clean energy ecosystem out there. We'll have much more on this, specifically as it pertains to ETFs, coming up in the next hour. Plus, what are the latest fund flows since the June bottom telling us about where investor sentiment is these days? We'll hear from Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street, all on ETF.CNBC.com. Halftime Report returns after this. All right, welcome back. Let's take a look at the cloud stocks today. The ETF that tracks those up 14% from recent lows. Big earnings on deck today in overtime, no less. Palo Alto and Zoom, Salesforce and Snowflake coming up later in the week. Nobody owns Palo Alto. I did. I got stopped. You did? Did, got stopped out of it, kept CrowdStrike, still have the position there. What about Palo Alto? Do you like it? Why don't you, why don't you still have it? I mean, why'd you get stopped? Why were you willing to get stopped out of it? Why don't you still own it? I guess is what I want to know. Because so, it's a stock yeah, that I remember Dan Ives telling me in overtime was a quote-unquote table pounder and the one to own in that space. I well, guess that's where I'm going. Right. So I think of software uh, and the exposure to it in you either have to be incredibly diversified like a Microsoft or you have to have that exposure to cybersecurity. I couldn't find any other opportunity in software. I wanted to lean in that direction. I went heavily towards cybersecurity with CrowdStrike mm-hmm. and Palo Alto. That proved me wrong. That proved me wrong. And in the management of risk, I got out of Palo Alto over CrowdStrike. Why? Because I think the, the ability, the penetration ability for CrowdStrike, the ability to gain more market share mm-hmm. is, is more visible for a CrowdStrike than it is for Palo Alto. I think Palo Alto has grabbed their market share. It's a company that we know well, okay? They're also up against Fortinet, which Stephanie Link has done a great job talking about. Those are the three names you could own here, the three levers that you could pull. So I think the, the maturity of Palo Alto is already represented within the company. Mm-hmm. And I think looking forward, you've got more growth opportunity in Fortinet and CrowdStrike. I agree you have to have security, software security in your portfolio. I choose to do it through Cisco, which wasn't in your list. Now, 
applaud me or criticize me for this, price matters to me. Okay, and all of these Palo Alto networks, crowd strikes of the world, they're just too expensive for me. Again, if you want to trade differently, if you want to invest differently, that's fine. Um, Cisco is a very attractively priced company with good enterprise spending going on. Uh, you have to have security exposure, and I've got it in Cisco. You're paying for the growth, though. That You want that growth. That's a legitimate reason. To, to, and I'm not being standoffish with you. Joe, you invest your way. I'll invest mine. This is just where I'm comfortable. But I think his point is that you're willing to pay a higher valuation, a bigger multiple for bigger growth. There are there are names in my portfolio. I think we're going to cover one in a second that are more expensive than I'm comfortable with. These names are just they're just too expensive for me. I just can't bring myself to do it. They're priced for perfection. If something goes wrong, I've got an air pocket. And then I've got clients saying, well, why did you buy it at that price? And I have to say, well, it wasn't really comfortable with the price, but I kind of held my nose and did it. It's just not how I'm going to do it. I hope you make a lot of money doing it. I really do. Honestly, that's all. And then, Bryn, there's Zoom, uh, which is after the bell, too. It was a three hundred and fifty dollar stock. Mind you, um, you have a small position in ARK, the ARKK, which owns both. Um, Zoom's not going away, but the growth rate is is gone. And I don't know, that growth rate's not coming back, is it? Well, I think it's interesting. Well, hold on for a second. You know, Zoom, talking about Cisco for a second. I do think you have to own, if you're, I own Bug, which is a cybersecurity ETF, which CrowdStrike's like a 7% position. So they've got big positions. You know, Zoom actually came out of Cisco because the founder couldn't get Cisco to, to evolve WebEx. And so I do think as it relates to these, you know, really high growth companies, you're never going to get the bang for your buck owning a company that has a small position and something that could be explosive growth. I think what's fascinating about Zoom, though, is it has a PE right now of 25 so I was just looking, you know, Clorox has a trailing P.E. of 39. And so and there's a bunch of other stocks. Zoom is a cheap stock. But what that's telling me is the market does not think their earnings are going to grow. Because, right, if 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 Kathy Wood and them are right, Zoom is like a 10 bagger from here. But if the market's right, they're saying this is a one trick pony that's not going to grow much more than this. Otherwise, it wouldn't have this huge discount to consumer staple like like Clorox. But so you're saying it's I think cheap. the jury's still out if they can actually evolve. You're saying it's cheap relative to a staple stock. It's expensive relative to the market. Well, I mean, barely. I mean, at 25, it's yeah, it's expensive relative to the market. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. But not that much more expensive. I just think that the reason it's not trading higher than this is is because people don't believe the growth rate. They think the growth is going to continue to slow. They pulled all that forward, and that as people go back to work, they're going to cancel their Zooms. Listen, we use Zoom. We use Teams. Zooms is much better than Teams as a, as like a use case. Um, teams is clunky, and so we'll see. I mean, I own Arc, but I think it'll be an interesting name that there's a lot of people short this and don't and don't believe that they're going to grow grow much past of 25 PE. Okay. All right. Stay with us. Mike Santoli, his midday word is up next. All right, we're back. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now from the Stock Exchange with his midday word. And it is a test, right? That's what you're looking at today. 
I am. Um, you know, in the test of this rally coming from the familiar directions, as we know, not just from Europe, where there is that obviously a scare there, both on inflation and growth and natural gas prices, but also just what it does to our 10-year Treasury yields and to the U.S. dollar. Now, I don't know that it has to be a round trip. Uh, just looking, last time the U.S. dollar index was at today's levels, or actually we're slightly above them today, was in uh, mid-July. S&P was below 4,000. Last time 10-year Treasury yield was at 3%. Uh, was all, like later July also below 4,000 on the S&P. My point being, it doesn't necessarily have to be dollar for dollar. Uh, I don't see the equity rally as really operating too far out of the bounds. It, you know, as you know, stops at the 200-day moving average. Now we're retracing a bit of it. You've buckled below the levels a lot of the bulls wanted to see it hold if it was going to be a really forceful, persistent rally, right, 4170 or so, but barely. Uh, and I do think one thing I'll mention, Scott, is it's been reassuring that sentiment has not really gotten overexcited about the potential upside. Uh, as you know, sitting in for you in the 4 o'clock show all last couple of weeks, it was tough to find people who said, yeah, this is the real thing. Yes, it's up and away from here. Mm. Most people wanted to remain cautious. It's the prudent thing to do. It makes sense at a confusing macro moment. But I'll just throw that out there, that it seems as if there's a real reservoir of skepticism out there that the market might be able to fall back on. I got you. All right, I'll see you in a few uh, for your last yep. word. This Mike Santel. You weren't on the floor last week? I think I made it. I, I said it was I tough sp- to find people. I spoke with Mike. Uh, we did the stock. We did uh, with Frank Holland the, the halftime report from the stock exchange. I saw him then, but I didn't get oh, the well, four. Oh, missed you at four. All right. Still ahead, oil slumping while natural gas keeps pushing to new highs. How the committee is positioning there. We'll do it next. We are back. Natural gas. That is the story of the day in energy. Joe, the highest level now since July of 08. Mm-hmm. Sixth positive week in seven. You've been playing for this. EOG, EQT, Valero, Pioneer, Natural Resources. EOG and EQT have been the, the two names that I have focused on mm-hmm. uh, last week when I was on overtime with Mike Santoli. We did discuss that natural gas would be going above $10 in the near term. I expect that to happen. It's something that we haven't seen in well over a decade. And I think the real supply challenge as we move into the fall is for natural gas. And that's why you have to have energy mm-hmm. at an overweight in your portfolio, which, because it's the hedge. It's the hedge against everything going wrong. Okay, which Bryn does, right? Devin, energy transfer, uh, and the XOP. Plus VSM, plus Viper. Yeah, hmm. I mean, so I think that, you know, we, we, we like energy here. I think that, you know, don't forget this fall, the strategic petroleum reserves will stop. That is not an oil supply. That is a reserve. So that would be about a million barrels, you know, coming offline. Supply is going to be tight. Demand still going to be strong. So I just think it's a good play. I like to play the dividend side. Devon, Viper Energy, BSM, all have really good dividends. In, in, in addition to, you know, potential capital appreciation from here. So yeah. we, we would definitely be staying long. All right. Weiss owns Devon, too, along with Enter, uh, Enterprise Products. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Oh, I'm excited about this lineup we have in overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern time. Adam Parker, Professor Jeremy Siegel. Ed Yardeni has a new call on stocks. He will tell you what it is in just a few hours. Cameron Dawson, Greg Branch, Palo Alto earnings along with Zoom. Do not miss it. I will see you 4 o'clock Eastern time in OT. Before we do that, we have to do this. Final trades. Steve Weiss, you go first. Talk to me. Thanks, Scott. That's appropriate. 
Look, Bryn came out as a final trade last week when I was on with Devin. I'm going to do the same thing today. StockX, great. And I do believe that natural gas is going to drive it. Whatever happens with, with oil, well, that'll be separate. I think that's going to be rocky for a while. I mean, just real quick on this before we get your final trade, Joe. There are calls for natural gas to be like 20 bucks. Yeah. Well, is that like the realm of possibility as, as you see it? Oh, once natural gas gets going, the upside potential is unknown. What's your final trade? My final trade would be Refiner, Valero Energy. You could also own Phillips 66 if you wanted. Okay. Uh, energy's back on, and I guess you guys are going to ride it again. All right, Farmer Jim. You I know, missed you, man. I missed you. I, I missed you, too. What do you got for me? Um, you you know, this is the second day in a week that all of us have had final trades at our energy. Normally, that's you a tell. No, you have energy, too? Yeah, Kinder Morgan. Kinder Morgan. It's a pipeline company that three-quarters of what they flow through their pipelines is natural gas. We're all seeing the same thing there. Those flows are going to pick up along with the price because Europe needs it. Um, normally, this many people on one side of the trade is a tell you're supposed to go the other way. I don't think so. I don't think so. The, the supply-demand imbalance is stark, both in natural gas and crude oil. Okay. Bryn? Uh, Viper Energy, uh, Texas-based mineral and royalty interest in natural gas and oil. Right. So has about a 10% distribution. Right. So go oil, go right. energy. Good stuff. I'll see everybody in OT. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric. ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.